All right, friends, while they receive the offering, why don't we go out ahead and pull out our Bibles? Uh, we're going to jump right in. And so you're going to want a Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible, maybe you forgot your Bible at home or you don't own a Bible, that's okay. There's, there should be one underneath the seat that you are sitting in. You can reach down there. You can grab that Bible. Um, if you don't own a Bible, steal that one, all right? Just take it, and then you can tell all your friends that you stole a Bible from church, and it'll just be amazing, right? Get a video of that. I want to see what their reaction is, um, and then you can invite them to come with you next week to Flourishing Grace. So um, pull that out. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 3 this morning, um, and that's on pages 1 and 2 of your Bible. Easy to find. Easy to find. If you can find page 1, you can find Genesis chapter 1. Um, and so we're gonna, that's where we're going to be this morning, page 1, Genesis chapter 1, and then we're going to flip over to Genesis chapter 3 at some point. This is our last Sunday, our last week in this series that we've been in uh, called True Flourishing Is. Here at Flourishing Grace Church, we are all about leading people into flourishing relationships with Jesus. That's what we're all about, leading people into flourishing relationships with Jesus. Well, what does that look like, Josh? How do I know if I have a flourishing relationship with Jesus? How, how do I know if, if my neighbors or my friends or my coworkers that I'm engaging in their life, how do I know if they're developing a flourishing relationship with Jesus? What does that actually mean? And so what we've done here at Flourishing Grace is we've uh, come up with these seven core convictions or seven core values um, that we'd say, man, if these things are true of your life, there is flourishing, gospel-centered flourishing, taking root, taking form, taking place there in your life. And we've been walking through these seven. And so if you're new or you, you've kind of been in and out for the past few weeks, you can catch up online at flourishinggrace.org. You can, you can listen to the sermons there. Um, this is the last one, and it's one of the ones that I'm most passionate about. Uh, this, this morning we're going to talk about true flourishing is committing to life together. True flourishing is committing to life together, committing to life together. And this is something that I'm super passionate about. If you've been around here, you've heard me preach um, what I'm about to preach uh, before, but I'm going to preach it again because it's that important. We're gonna, and we're going to preach it again and again and again and again. Uh, we must be a people who commit to life together. In fact, I would go so far as to say uh, true flourishing is impossible alone. It is impossible to flourish by yourself. It just, it doesn't work that way. And, and in fact, I don't have, we don't have to spend a lot of time, uh, even in the Word, to try and convince you that it doesn't work that way. You just look at the world around you and you know it doesn't work that way. Uh, it, it, people who are alone do not flourish. They, they do not have flourishing lives and they certainly don't have gospel-centered flourishing, which is a whole other level in and of itself, right? A study was done at Harvard and at Harvard uh, University, they found that having no friends was linked to increased levels of blood clotting protein, which can cause heart attacks and stroke. Literally, um, being removed from relationships, um, being closed off from community, not, ha not committing to life together uh, can kill you, all right? So listen up, all right? Another study said that lonely people had a 50% increase risk of early death. That's before the age of 70. 50% increase if you are lonely compared to those with good social connections. In contrast, obesity raises the chance of dying before the age of 70 by around 30%, all right? Loneliness increases your chance of death before 70 by 50%. Obesity increases it by 30%. So what I gather from this data, right? Don't eat healthy alone. Get your bros and go to Taco Bell. All right? 
that's, that's just for free. That is just a life lesson. It's science. I would explain it more, but it's right there. The study says, don't eat healthy alone. Get your friends and go get some real food, all right? Go, go to Taco Bell. It's going to be amazing, all right? So you, anytime you say, well, at least I'm with my friends, okay? At least I have friends at Taco Bell rather than sitting alone, sitting at home alone. Um, also, we, we, use, we use loneliness or the removal of community to torture people. We, we use this as a source of punishment, right? This is, this is the primary way that we punish people. If you, if you break into someone's home and you steal their stuff and you get arrested, where do you go? Come on, people. Jail. Jail. Yeah, there's one person knows where you go. <laughs> Ever been there? Uh, you go to jail. You go to prison, right? You are removed from your relationships. You're removed from your family. You're removed from your friends. You're removed from your neighbors. You're removed from our society. That is our punishment. Now, if you're in prison and you commit a crime in prison, right? You take your toothbrush, you melt it down, you create a little shank, and you shank somebody, right? I've watched Lock Up. I know how it goes down. All right? I'm not messing around. Um, what happens to you then? Where do you go? Solitary confinement. Now, how do you guys know more about solitary confinement than you do about jail? You go to solitary confinement. You are literally removed from all of your relationships. Like, that's, the, that's like the worst punishment that we can think of. It's like, what, what can we do to this person who is literally like the worst of the worst? Not only did they do something to get punished, they did something while they're being punished, right? What's the worst that we can do? Oh, let's remove them from all of their relationships where no flourishing can take place. It is impossible to flourish alone, and you know it, and I know it. The question is why? Why? Why can't we flourish alone? Now, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about spending a day alone. Like, that's good for your soul to unplug, leave your phone at home, close the computer, turn off the TV, go up, and go up into the mountains. Like, that's what I'm talking, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about removing yourself from relationships, why is it impossible to flourish alone? What, why is that? I, you see, I believe that there is an answer, and that answer is from Scripture. That, that answer is rooted in actually a deep theological truth that the God of gods, the King of kings, is triune. What we mean by that is that he's three, but yet he's one. There's one singular God, one God, only one, one singular monotheistic singular God, um, and he has existed for all time as a community of persons, right? So there's how many gods? One God. And that singular God has existed for all time as a community of persons, three to be exact, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now I know that's hard for us as humans to wrap your mind around. How can I be one person but yet be three people? He's God, okay? All right? Um, and he, this is just how he exists is in three persons, but yet he is one singular being, one singular God, Three distinct persons make up this one singular God. And he has existed for all eternity as one singular God in a relationship, a community of persons, three persons. And you and I, we were created in his image. In Genesis chapter 1, we're going to look at the first relationship, the first people uh, to, to ever be created in his image. And in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, um, it reads this way. It talks about how we were created. It says it this way in, in verse 20, actually verse 26. Yes, verse 26. Then God said, let's, what's the word? Us. Wait a second. That's plural. Who is he talking to? He hadn't created anybody yet. Who is he talking to? 
One singular God is talking to himself, his persons. Let us, plural, create man in our, plural, image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God, singular, back to singular, created man in his singular, his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. All right. God, plural, even though he's singular, I know it's hard, right? But he's God. He's got he's to go with me, right? Three persons, one singular God creates one singular man in his image. Now that's going to that's gonna do something. That's going to, what's going on there? Have you ever wondered... Have you ever wondered what God was doing in the eternity that existed before he created the world? What was God doing before he created anything? Before he created plants and trees and stars and moons and uh, you and me, what, what was he doing? I mean, he's just, there's nothing. It's just, there's nothing. What was, he, what was he doing? Before he created the heavens, what was he doing? Theologians of old had a word for it. They couldn't sum it up in a single, uh, a simple phrase. They couldn't, there was no, there was nothing that could describe it. It was, it's too complicated. And so they developed a word for it. That word was parichoresis. It's Latin. It means to dance or to move about. It literally means to move. Parichoresis, to, to move. A movement. And what they meant by that was that in that eternity that existed before anything else existed, that God the Father was perfectly loving, perfectly delighting, and perfectly worshiping uh, the Spirit and the Son, while the Son was perfectly lifting up and praising and perfectly loving and delighting in the Spirit and the Father, while the Spirit was perfectly worshiping and loving and delighting in the Father and the Son. This, this movement of these persons, this one singular God, and yet three persons all treating each other equally and worshiping each other equally and, and praising each other more and more and giving more and more glory to themselves, to oneself, to God. This beautiful movement. And what it means, friends, what it means is that before there was anything, literally before there was anything, before there was carbon or oxygen, before there was um, moons and stars, before there was heaven and earth, before there was blood and flesh and people, before there was anything, there was a relationship. And Genesis 1 says that you and I and every human being that's ever walked the face of the earth was created in the image of that relationship. You see, God, the image of God, the Imago Dei, is at its core, it is a relationship. Our, our God, the God that we worship, the God that we gather, the God, the God that we sing songs to, um, is at its core, he is a relationship. And you are created in the image of a relationship. This is why we can't stand to be alone. This is why the, the strongest and toughest and most courageous of men are, are deathly afraid of being alone. In solitary confinement. This is why every little girl, from the moment she can begin to dream, begins to dream of the day when she will enter into the ultimate human relationship, marriage. And she'll give her life fully to one person for the rest of her life. What will that day be like? She can, she can tell you the story. She can tell, she's never even been there, but she knows. This is why we're so afraid of being alone. This is why our soul longs for community. 
And we desperately need friendships. It's not vain. It's who you were created to be. It's how we were designed by God. Now, the problem is, is that uh, you can't simply, you can't simply solve this by getting more friends, all right? You can't just hop on Facebook and be like, all right, I'm going to get some more friends. I'm going to ask people to like me, and it's going to all be good. We're going to work it all out. I'm going to invite some people over, and we're gonna, I'm going to get friendships, and the problem is solved. You know, the problem, uh, at one point, that would have been somewhat true, but at, the problem is far deeper than that, actually. You see, you and I were created in the image of God, but that image of God in you and in me has been broken and fractured, right? So Adam and Eve created in the image of God, chapter one, but by chapter three, they take that image of God and they break it and they walk all over it. And ever since then, um, this longing has been within us. The longing to get back to the way it was created to be, the longing to get back to how it was designed to be has been within you and me and all of humanity. In Genesis three, um, Adam and Eve eat from the tree that God commanded them not to eat. He says, literally, you can have anything you want. The world is yours. The garden is yours. You can eat from any tree. You can do whatever you want to do. But because I am God, this tree is mine. In order for you, my creation, to treat me as God, your maker, this one's mine. You're going to respect me. This is mine. Do not touch it. Don't even touch it. Of course I do. And here's how it goes. Genesis 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Which doesn't work, by the way. You can't hide from God in trees. Um, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He, God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman that you gave me to be with, uh, she, she gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. Now God's going to go on, and he's going he's to curse the serpent, he's going to curse the woman, and he's going to curse the man. He curses the creation that he's created. The image of God in this moment is broken, and it's fractured. Now the consequences of that curse, we could, we could preach an entire series on the consequences of the curse that's laid out. We don't have time this morning to get into the fullness of the curse. I just want to point out... Uh, couple pieces to you. Well, the first piece is this, the woman. In verse 16, the woman, he said, this is what he says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In your pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. All right, there's three things. Three things. In this moment, relationship. The way it was designed to be, the way it was created to be, is broken, it is severed, it is incomplete, it is, it is unwhole. It is a canvas, a beautiful painting that has now been ripped in half and it cannot be restored, right? So the relationship between humanity and God is broken. 
right? Before, they're, they're walking around naked and everything is good and there's no shame, there's no condemnation, everything is right, everything is good. They, they literally, there's nothing to hide. I have nothing to hide. In an instant, in a moment, it's changed. It's gone. Now I'm ashamed. Now I realize my brokenness. Now I realize my sorrow. And literally, and, and, and so when you walk into the room with God, you are exposed fully, and it's ugly, rather than being exposed fully, and there's no blame. It's all joy. Before God, we are exposed because of sin, because of our brokenness. The design is fractured, and our relationship with him is broken and severed, and we can no longer draw near. But at the same time, the relationship between the man and the woman has been broken and severed. Um, the, the wife can no longer uh, be one who gets along with her husband. Any married couples in the room know what I'm talking about? I'm just, I'm just asking, right? Any, any married women in the room ever, ever say, man, I want to do this thing, or I want to go here, or I want to be like this. I, I want us to go do this as a family. And the husband says, no, we're not going to do that. I'm putting my foot down. We're not any, any, any wives in the room ever experience that? You're laughing, but you're not reasoning. I know your husband's sitting right next to you. I promise you, I promise you, you can raise your hand. Literally, it's a part of the curse. Every argument, every marital argument that has ever happened, because of Genesis chapter 3, every ounce of it. Every marital argument, every failed marriage, every, every ounce of it is because of Genesis chapter 3. You, you want to know why when you look at the world and you see uh, women who are mistreated and abused and, and put down, and, and even, even, even on a higher level in, in the workplace, in the world, you, you want to know why that is? Just chapter 3. It's part of the curse. It's written into the curse of the world. We rejected God. We turned our back on him, and he wrote it into the curse. You want to know why people aren't treated equally? written in the curse. It wasn't designed to be that way. It wasn't created to be that way. You and I, humanity broke it. We made it that way. It's not we're supposed to be that way. And then the very next thing that we see um, in the very next storyline in chapter three are their sons, two of their sons, Cain and Abel. All right, Cain gets a little jealous, a little bitter at his brother, and he kills his brother Abel. And so literally, oh, you, have, you have these three different relationships. You have the, the relationship between man and God, broken. You have the relationship between uh, woman and man, broken. You have, you have the relationship between brothers, broken. All human relationship is now broken. It's fractured. It's, it's incomplete. It's unwhole. And so even though we long for true, genuine, meaningful relationships, it's so much harder now than it was before. It seems like no matter how hard we try, all of our relationships are just kind of surface deep. And I can say with confidence, the majority of your relationships are surface level. The majority of the relationships in your life are just so thin. You only let people come in so far. You keep them at an arm's distance. This is true for all of us. Man, I don't want to engage. I don't want to deal with that. Right? To let everybody in your life in, to let everybody in your life know your, your darkest hours and your, your, your most embarrassing moments and your, your greatest moments of shame and regret, to let everybody in your life know that and, and to think that, that, that in some way, shape, or form that everybody's going to accept you just the way you are is silly. It's not true. The world doesn't work that way, and you know it doesn't work that way. And so we just kind of keep most people kind of at arm's, level, at arm's length. I don't want to go Cain and Abel in my relationship. So it's just easier to keep everybody here. But true flourishing, 
True flourishing happens. True flourishing happens when, when relationships form that go beyond that. Where we, where we wade into someone's sin, and we wade into their brokenness, and we let their sin crash on us, and we love them anyways. We love them for who they are, not for who we think that they should be or who we want them to be. We love them for who they are. We, we allow their anger moments to hit us. We allow their jealousy moments to hit us. We allow their bitterness moments to hit us, and we love them for who they are. I'm going to tell you, I can, I can guarantee you the people in your life that you love the most are the people that hurt you the most. People in your life who, who you love the most and you care about the most are the ones who either have or will hurt you the most because you're going to let them do it again and again and again. This is your spouse, your children, your best friends because they can get away with it and you're going to still love them. Other people who do that stuff, same thing to you, you just move on because they're at arm's length. True flourishing happens. The real relationship happens when we can allow the sin hit us straight on and we're going to love them the same. My hero, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German theologian in Nazi Germany, Bonhoeffer uh, said this about in a book called Life Together, which is where we get that language, committing to life together, is from uh, my hero Bonhoeffer. He writes this. He says, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. This is what he's saying. He's saying, man, if you, just, if you love the idea of community, man, everybody loves me, and everybody treats me nice, and everybody, everybody thinks Josh is awesome, and they're going to do what I want them to do, and, and we're going to have this amazing community, you will crush that community. If you think, man, my spouse is supposed to be this way and it's going to be perfect and they're going to be, I've found the one and they're going to fulfill all my longings and desires, you will crush them under the weight of your longings and desires. You think that your kids are going to always respect you and they're always going to be kind, they're always going to love you and, you, and then you will crush them under the weight of your expectations. The same is true for your friends, for your neighbors, for your coworkers, for everybody in your life. You will crush them if you think, man, community, I love community, the dream of community. But if you love them for who they are, knowing that they are broken, knowing that they are sinful, knowing that they're going to hurt you, but you love them the same, you love them the same, you press in, you love them more, that's where true flourishing begins. And friends, here's what I want you to hear. If you haven't heard anything else, this is what God's been doing since the beginning. For you and for me, this is what he's been doing all along. You see, when Adam and Eve sin, and they, they literally take this beautiful creation, this imago day, this thing that God has created, oh my gosh, like perfect relationships created, and they destroy it. Yes, they're punished because God is perfectly just. But then he kills two animals, and he clothes them. He says, I, I know you're naked, and I know you're ashamed, and I know that you've gotten yourself into a mess but I'm going to move in. I'm going to wade into the mess to comfort you, to clothe you, 
And this moment is a foreshadowing of a greater moment that's yet to come, that has come, but it was yet to come when, when it happened. It's, a, it's this foreshadowing of Jesus. It's a foreshadowing of a time when God will once again kill in order to clothe, but this time he doesn't kill an animal. He steps off of his throne, wades into our sin, allows it to crash down upon him, all of it, 100% of it, the sin of the world on his shoulders. He goes to the cross, he bleeds the ground red, red to clothe us in his righteousness not in the skin of an animal, but in his own righteousness. He clothes us. And friends, this changes everything. It changes everything in your life. It changes everything in mind. If you, if you commit to putting Jesus first at all costs, and you say, man, I, this I need more than anything in my life is Jesus. I need his grace I need his blood to wash over me, to cleanse me, to make me right, to make me righteous. It changes everything for you, and it changes everything in your relationships. It changes everything from in your relationship with God. It changes everything in your relationships with other people. Paul writes about this in Ephesians 2, um, maybe kind of the most unpacking of this idea, both between God and man. He writes it this way. In Ephesians 2, verse 4 and through, 4 through 9, it changes our relationship with God. He says this, But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, right? So God wades into our brokenness, even though we're, even though we're wretched and we're stained and we've rejected him, he, with the great love in which he loves us, he wades into it all and he makes us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, saved from the brokenness of the curse, saved from the curse, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in a heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. This is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. You did nothing to earn it. You did nothing to earn it. I did nothing to earn it. God in all of our brokenness, and all of our shame, wades in, allows it to crash over him so that he might make us alive together, that he might restore the image of God, that he might restore our righteousness so that we no longer have to have shame in his presence. We're clothed in his righteousness. There's no longer need to be ashamed or embarrassed or afraid of our darkest hours and our darkest moments because he has, he has literally washed it all away by the blood of Christ, dying in our place. Killing the curse and creating new life. And he seated us with him for all time in the heavenly places with Christ. He's restored our relationship with God. Now, the flip side of this is that he's also restored our relationships. He's made a way for us to restore our relationships with each other, with the rest of humanity, with men and women, with, 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 with brothers and friends and coworkers. He's made a way for us to restore our relationships together. Paul goes on in the same chapter, Ephesians 2, in verse 13, he says it this way, But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Peace in our marriages. Peace in our friendships. Peace in our relationships with our neighbors. Peace in the entire world. He is our peace. Not you. You don't have this in you. He has brought it. He has given it. Christ is our peace. 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by his death on the cross has broken down this wall that once divided you and me. It's broken down the wall that once divided you and the people who you don't get along with. You see, the reason why you don't get along with people in your life is because you have something that they don't have. It could be just like a, some, a, as simple as, man, I have a belief. I, I, have a, I have a belief that things should be this way. People should show up on time, so I don't get along with people who don't show up on time. All right? It could be something as simple as that. It could be something deeper. It could be, could be a, a hatred that we have for, for people who are this way, a certain skin color, a certain race, a certain ethnicity from a different place, from a different, from a different line of, of income. But at the foot of the cross, do you have more than they have? Do you bring something to Jesus that they don't bring? You see, at the foot of the cross, Jesus takes it all, he breaks it all down, and the reality is that you have nothing, there's nothing special in any of those things. None of those things are special. He didn't create it that way. We did. It's all our own brokenness. We, we want to get back to this image of God. We want to get back to this Imago day where we feel value and worth, and so we create a false sense of worth. We create a false sense of value. I'm valuable because of my skin color. That's laughable in the gospel. It doesn't work. I'm valuable because of my income. It's meaningless before Christ. And so we come before Christ, and when the, when the fullness of the gospel washes over us, it removes the things that we find our worth in. And suddenly where there was once two, there is now one. He might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here's what he's saying. When we have a flourishing relationship with Jesus, we become one person. There's no one who's better than this person or better than that person. Now, are we, are we all the same? No. No. Paul writes a lot about this idea. He writes a lot about this idea about how we bring, we're actually given different spiritual gifts the Spirit shapes and molds us to look differently, to be able to be good at these things, and this person is good at those things, and this person can do this stuff. But when we come together and we are made one by the blood of Christ, where there is no longer, man, my gift's better, or my gift's better. No, no, no. At, at the foot of the cross, we all become one. Yes, certain people are in positions of authority, right? But at the foot of the cross, they don't consider themselves better than anybody else. They're just put in charge. And they happily let, lay that down in order to love those around them. This is the beauty of the gospel. The gospel restores relationships. And as we fight to become more like Jesus, it changes the way people love us and the way people view us as we love others the way that Jesus loved us. As we become transformed into his image from one degree of glory to the other, 
When somebody comes at me and attacks me um, with, with anger or bitterness or frustration or jealousy, I lay down my life. And I love them for who they are, not this idea of false community. No, I realize that I will have that for all eternity, seated at the right hand of God. I'll, I'll be there. I'll be, I'll be right there, fully restored. So in this moment, it doesn't matter. My identity is wrapped up in Christ. I don't need to fight for that anymore. We can become one. And he, and he paints this picture, this beautiful illustration of, 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 a, of, the, of the early church fathers, the apostles, the disciples, laying the foundation, Christ being the cornerstone. And then each person who puts their hope in Jesus is stacked upon that, stacked upon that, and creating this beautiful dwelling place of God. A temple. Not with human hands. Not, not with brick and mortar or stone. No, no, no. You and me, we are the temple. Those of us who love Jesus more than we love anything in this world, we are the temple. We're the people who love our neighbors and love each other. Apart from the gospel, now you remove all that. You remove every bit of that. You remove, you remove the blood. You remove the righteousness. Now I must make myself right, not just in my eyes, but in yours. I need to have something in my life that's better than what you have. I need, I need to feel worth. I need to feel value because I don't have it in Christ. True flourishing cannot happen there because relationships can't be formed there. We need community that presses in and loves us in the same way that Christ loves us. And the only way that happens is if we have communities of Christ followers in our lives that we allow in and fully engage. Now, I said at the beginning of this that today is Small Group Connect Sunday. Right after we're done here, the, the door opens, and, and in there are all of our small group leaders. And, 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 and what I want to just kind of challenge you and, and spur you on and, and say, Ben, you need this in your life. And I'm not here to say it's easy. I'm not, I'm not here to say, listen, all these groups are in different journeys. Some of them are just beginning. Like, it's going to be a bunch of people in the room that don't even know each other. It takes time to press in. It takes time to allow the gospel to shape us and mold us and to lean in. So some of them have been going for a while, but they're still not fully there. They, they love each other, but they, it's still surface level. Some of them are deep and flourishing, and, and they know things about each other that nobody else knows. You might say, Josh, man, I don't want to go into that. That's, that's weird, man. They got their thing going. Listen, listen, those are the groups, those are the groups that want you there more than the rest. I'll tell you that right now. The ones that have experienced this level of flourishing, experienced this type of relationship, they're the ones that say, man, we got to make more room. we got to make more space. My, my group, who I have shared things with that I, I don't share with anybody, and they've, they've leaned into my life, and they've called me out on the rug, and they've, they've, they've seen things in my life, and they've called me, and they've helped me in my marriage. They've helped me as a dad. Literally, my group said, man, we need to multiply. We need to create two groups in order to make more space so that people can experience the same thing that we're experiencing. Now, you might say, Josh, I've been coming at you for a long time, and I've never experienced anything like that. I don't, I don't, that's, dude, that's, just, that's, that's not real. Listen, this, friends, is not church. Not. This, this, this Sunday gathering is a love-reorienting practice where we're called to, to turn our affections back towards Christ because we've forgotten that throughout the week because we're sinful and broken and we need, we need to hit the reset button. That's what this is. But when you're just sitting in rows and you're listening to me talk, you're, you're not going to find flourishing relationships there. We got to get out of this room. We got to get into people's homes and living room and sit around tables and sit around, sit around couches and, and engage in real life. 
We've got to commit to life together in order to experience any sense of true flourishing. It is not possible alone. This is why we want everybody in a small group. Not so that we can hang our hat on some number and say, man, we've got 100% of our people in a small group. No. Who cares? I want you to experience flourishing in your life, and you will not, you will not, you will not, outside of deep, true, gospel-centered relationships. Jesus is the only one who makes this happen. We need people in our lives who spur us on towards him, or we will be moved from one degree of glory to another into his likeness, and we'll be able to love those who don't love us in return, always. And they'll be able to love us even when we are broken, and even when we are fractured. Christ is the only way to that. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I pray that this morning, even in this room, that, that I know there's people in this room that have broken relationships in their lives, whether it's a family member or a friend, a coworker. I pray that even right now that you'd be moving in our souls and reminding us that, man, if we want that relationship to be restored, it starts with us. We can't control the other person, but we can draw near to you, be transformed in your likeness, have a flourishing relationship with you where we are made in your image and that image begins to be restored and we begin to look more like you and act more like you and suddenly when they come at us with frustration we come back with grace not because we're cool not because we're good enough because your spirit's moving in us and through us they come at us with with frustration we come back with mercy and kindness it softens the world around us changes the way people act think. And people begin to press in and say, man, I want that in my life. It's a contagious thing. Might we be a, a, a church? Might we be a church of contagious community? Where people from South Davis County, our friends, our neighbors say, man, small group, what, what? I see you guys doing these things together. I see you doing life together. I see you hanging out. I see you having joy and fulfillment. I see these people who love you no matter what. Man, I want that. I need that in my life. And we'd look right back at them and we'd say, no, what you need is Jesus. He's the only way to true, flourishing community. And we need community in order to be spurred on to him, in order to love him right and well. Help us. We need you. I pray these things in your name. In the name of Jesus. Amen.